You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everyone, and welcome again to Inside Healthcare. I'm Matt Brock. This week, two inspiring guests join us to talk health equity or about things that impact equity. In fact, both of these doctors just presented at the annual Quality Talks. For more on that, go to qualitytalks.org. When it comes to solving gaps in equity, both come from very different backgrounds and experiences, yet each one proves how bridging historic gaps in health equity could be the key to solving all of the flaws of modern healthcare in the United States. But they both also warn bumpy roads could lie ahead. Now for our first guest. At NCQA, we've turned our equity concerns into action, folding new equity measures into HEDIS and launching our health equity accreditation programs. So even when we're not necessarily talking equity, we still come around to seeing things through an equity lens. Dr. Joshua Lau is an expert in the topic of value-based payment reform, a board-certified internal medicine physician with the University of Washington. He completed med school at Baylor, then trained at Brigham and Women's Hospital while also serving as a clinical fellow at Harvard Med School. Now, among his prominent positions at UW, Dr. Lau is medical director for payment strategy at UW Medicine. He strongly believes value-based payment structures not only save provider resources, it could save healthcare as we know it. And as you'll hear, Dr. Lau sees value-based care through that health equity lens. First off, let's just uh, hear your take on value-based healthcare. Imagine I'm a doctor uh, running a traditional um, sort of primary care office. What's your pitch? to convince me to move away from fee-for-service. This really is about delivering the right care to patients in the right way where they need it. And that sounds maybe very conceptual, but I think as we're thinking about things like value-based payment and care, they're very practical. So um, I think most, if not every clinician had the experience of people who are getting care, they may not need all of it. You might get a little too much or might see too many people for care. On the other side, we might have people that we wish would get more coordination in their care, you know, uh, get more care than they're able to get access to. And coordination is a really helpful cross-cutting idea, too, because even for people who get the, quote, right amount of care, sometimes that's not coordinated and communicated in the best way. We all have experiences with this. And sometimes that leads to frustration and suboptimal outcomes, right? Um, and so I think if I were talking to clinicians, I would say we've all seen this in our practice. And to me, a move towards value, right? Which is not a monolithic thing. It comes in many different flavors and looks different, but a move to that helps us do that. It is one way in which we can say, if people don't need the care, this is how we manage and stay accountable for that care. If people need more care, they need more coordination. That gives us an incentive and a motivation uh, to do that. And so I would say that that really is um, one of the main reasons to do it. The other is that um, when we think about traditional offices, I think we have to really kind of um, think about that idea. You know, traditional means something different for different doctors, right? So some clinicians have really been in traditional models that don't look like fee-for-service and some do, and that varies. And I say that not to complicate the picture. I say that simply to say that the pitch will look different for different people. 
but where every practice and group is now is a reflection, I think, of a ways in which we try to meet the needs of our patients and our communities. And so I think value-based payment and care is yet another way and a really important one for doing that. So, uh, you know, at NCQA, we're very concerned about um, accountability. It's part of the setup for patient-centered medical home, for our um, accreditation products, for our equity products. We hold folks accountable. Tell me how value-based care assists in accountability. Right. So if we take fee-for-service as kind of a contrast and say that, um, as the name suggests, you get a fee for a service. And there's nothing inherently bad about that. I'm not saying clinicians and groups deliver care in a fee-for-service with no eye towards quality or cost efficiency or anything like that. It's just that there's no inherent accountability tied to that. If you contrast that with value-based payment, when we think of accountability, what we're really talking about is that instead of being accountable for being uh, delivering a service or doing the technical part of procedure, you're accountable for the outcomes of that care. Specifically, you're accountable for clinical outcomes, quality outcomes, cost outcomes. And so uh, accountability in that context is very concrete. And it means that at the end of whatever period and whatever value-based payment arrangement we're talking about, there will be kind of a review process. And in that process, clinicians that are in that arrangement are held accountable financially for how their patients do with respect to clinical quality and cost outcomes. And that's likely, uh, you know, when you add dollars, that begins to make uh, folks stand up and take attention, right? That's accountability. Uh, Dollars tend to work better than anything else. That, well, one of the main parts of, I think, my and my colleague's work is really saying that money is a very important motivator. I think that's fair to say, but it's certainly not the only one. And so you're hinting at some of these other ones, for example, uh, accreditation. Um, and making sure you're meeting certain standards, their professional norms and standards. So these are kind of interlocked, but yes, I think uh, incentives and financial incentives are a key part of it, but they're certainly not the only, the only one. To the extent that we can bring multiple motivations and incentives together, I think towards and in service of an important goal, I think all the better. Uh, asking for a friend. We'll, we'll, we'll chalk it up like that. Okay. Uh, you go to the doctor for a regular checkup. That doctor uh, lists several vaccinations you need to have. Uh, it's a primary care physician. Okay. Uh, list a number of uh, vaccinations you need to have. You start the regimen for uh, one of them that requires you to come back in a month. They don't tell you. They don't call you back. So when you call back and say, I know I'm supposed to get a second dose, they tell you, oh, yeah, you are. But you got to start over because you waited longer than a month. Hmm. That, uh, I think, how does value-based care sort of solve that problem? Hmm. It seems to me that something is lost there and that value-based care, holding people accountable may uh, improve that. I think at a fundamental level where fee-for-service really focuses on the inputs of care, what we're doing, the materials and the services we're providing, uh, value-based care really focuses on the outputs. What is the health that we get as a result of healthcare? Again, with respect to quality, clinical, cost, utilization, et cetera. And so I think when you shift to focus on outputs, you start thinking about the world in a different way. You start thinking about not just what's happening as I'm giving the inputs when that person is sitting in front of me in the clinic or in the hospital, you're thinking, 
what's now happening and what impact can I have on what's happening when that person is not there in front of me? Right. And so, um, you know, concepts and ideas have emerged around care coordination, uh, longitudinal care management, those types of things. And really at the heart of that is to say, we really need to widen our aperture and think about people when they're with us in the healthcare settings, you know, within our four walls, so to speak, and when they're outside. And so I think the example you gave is an example of that, where we would track those people. We would have a population health management approach of saying, let's make sure we're closing the loop on vaccination, on cancer screening, on business with subspecialists. Now, at each of those joints of all those connections, sometimes that leaves a certain practice, right? So a primary care clinician can do certain things, as you described vaccination, but sometimes you need care between a primary care clinician and other clinicians. And it's at that point where coordination and communication all become very important. So there are layers to this. You know, How do you coordinate care within a group? How do you communicate and coordinate across different groups and entities? And again, these are really important, but you roll it up to that really idea of accountability. And communication is nice. Coordination is nice. But when you nest those within accountability, they take on a, a certain importance, as you hinted at. I want to hear your take on how um, value-based care uh, works with closing uh, uh, disparities and closing the gaps in care we see di between different groups. I think there are limitations in fee-for-service for addressing equity. And the shift to value-based payment, I think, represents an important advance. But I think the way we've thought about it over the last decade or so has not inherently helped close disparity gaps or address equity. That's actually at the heart of the work that I'm doing currently, which is to say that we shouldn't abandon ship, so to speak, on value-based payment. It is an important part of going forward in healthcare. However, if we go forward in the next 10 years, the way we were in the last 10 years, I don't think actually we'll hit the target that you're describing, which is how do we have value-based payment, um, reduce disparities, and really promote health equity. So said simply, I think value-based payment with a number of changes can do that, but today it doesn't. And uh, let me give you an example of why. Go back to that idea of accountability. So now kind of in a value-based world, clinicians and groups are now accountable financially for both kind of the outcomes and the costs of care. One of the challenges is that if we know that certain patients in certain communities, right, because of structural discrimination or historical marginalization or other factors, if we know for whatever reason, those groups have outcomes that are harder than perhaps other groups to control. And so the outcomes are harder to achieve and it may be more costly to get those outcomes there. Now, when you shift it from fee-for-service, input-focused, to value-based payment, output-focused, and you realize as a clinician or as a group that those outputs are harder to achieve and more costly to achieve for certain groups, that creates a dilemma potentially, right? Um, it creates a dilemma about how are you going to do deliver care? How are you going to do things to promote outcomes and be cost efficient for those groups? So you can see actually how potentially value-based payment could inadvertently actually make it harder to achieve equity. And again, that is the, the, the heart of our message is how do we then make sure that's not happening? Give us the first step we need to make. Yeah. So if I could leave people with one idea, it really is this idea of intention and the relationship of intention to implementation. And the reason I say that, you know, those of us who have spent decades thinking about um, disparities and equity and payment, 
I think those communities recognize that we often talk about inequity as an unintended consequence, unintended consequence. I myself haven't done the lit search for it, but I'm sure if you looked, you would say that is a very common way of talking about these. And it struck me that, you know, as long as we think about inequity as a thing to monitor for, let's do something and then let's make sure we monitor for that unintended consequence. We're, we're missing something. And so I think the first step really is to set an intention to say, if you, if you think about inequity as one of the deepest and the, the most challenging issues in our healthcare system, set an explicit intention that in your doing of creating payment models and delivery models that are related to that, that you center equity in that, right? So rather than an unintended consequence, it's an intentional design. It's a lens through which you see everything. And I think that intention leads to implementation, meaning if you were to put those lens on and say, everything I'm going to do in creating value-based payment or other things in policy was seen through an equity lens, what would look different? Would you design the models the same way? Would you incentivize things the same way? Would you set the same measures? Would you accredit the same way? My point is, no, I don't think you would. And um, I think that is the first step that leads to all other steps. And I think for, um, for an absence of that step, I think we, we risk, the, 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 um, we, we risk um, not achieving equity the way we can. You know, at NCQA, we tend not, uh, we, we do talk about value-based care, but we tend to not talk uh, too much about the cost of care Sure. It, you know, because quality is our objective. So we're very concentrated in that area. Mm-hmm. However, this conversation has had a bit about cost and expense. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I wonder if there is a way or it, that really tackling equity will have a financial benefit. And if you could point that out to those, those providers and frankly, business owners who are um, looking at their bottom line, is there a better financial incentive at the end, or do we still have to make those? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so let me let me kind of frame my response by saying that um, a prevailing concept in value based payment has been cost savings, right? Um, and so, how do we deliver care while saving costs? That's well-intentioned. And I think there are clear reasons why we need to be very careful and mindful of the spending in in US healthcare. And we can point to many examples of why that would be. But I think that actually brackets us in a way that when we think about equity may not be helpful. And what I mean by that is if you then take a big step back and think about value more broadly, it doesn't have to be just cost savings. Sometimes it can be, particularly if you think there's a lot of um, unnecessary, inappropriate costs in the system. But you can imagine getting to greater value by saying, um, we actually might end up spending more, but the quality gains we get out of that spending outstrip that spending, right? That proportional to the dollar, you get a lot more clinical and quality benefit. And I wish that was something that we would see more in value-based payment models, because that opens the world up to different types of measurement of quality and accountability around quality and the pursuit of equity. So I think that's a key. Moving away from just cost savings equals success, everything else is not success. I think that's a little too narrow. Um, I think in that wider view, though, um, I do think that um, you know this idea of groups and entities thinking about quality, at least being mindful of where in the value equation, where in these different ways of thinking about value does that quality come from, it is then really important. And 
putting these two ideas together, you know, putting these two ideas together, I would say what we've seen in some of my work, unfortunately, is that even in areas where if you take a big step back and say, okay, overall, we need to maybe stamp out costs. There's some inappropriate utilization. There are kind of um, savings to be had here from a macro sense. When you get in to look at certain communities and subgroups of patients that have historically underutilized, you actually find that there's variation there. So you could say a certain procedure or a type of care we need to maybe do less of perhaps on a high level, but for certain historically marginalized groups, you might want to do more actually. And that just a blunt approach of pushing all utilization down, doing less, less, less actually could, if anything, exacerbate that issue. If anything, it could exacerbate the issue for groups that maybe need more of that. And so that's actually where I think um, quality measures that capture these issues help really um, outline the contours. They help kind of paint all the different facets of what we need to consider there um, in this new way of a value-based payment. And, and you're making a strong argument there for all the data to be stratified by, by race and sex and all of those sort of uh, factors, identifying factors, correct? Yes, I, I think the way we measure today is not going to get us to where we want to be in terms of encoding equity into payment and then delivery models. On the other hand, I do want to acknowledge that, you know, when you start stratifying, you, you know, one stratum becomes many strata, you know, very quickly. And there's a question of, you know, multiple measures, multiple comparisons, multiple strata. And so it can be very dizzying. That is the hard work I wish groups and people would do across the country. That is, you know, clearly one thing I think we need to do. And we need to have some parsimony there as well. So, yes, I am a proponent of that, but I recognize the pragmatism that needs to be applied there. Um, and the variation, right? And the variation that might be needed across um, different communities. I don't think one size will fit all here. When do you think we're sort of looking back and saying, hey, we really made a market change? One of the things that emanates, right, is almost like a very early second step from intention is, in my opinion, to set bold goals. And um, I think that goal setting, by the way, is something unto itself. But I think if we don't set goals, uh, as a measure of progress, I think we have missed something there. And you don't have to look very far as analogs. I think quality and the quality community represents a great example. But I also think actually even value-based payment itself. So if you take yourself back to you know, the early 2010s, uh, policymakers and saying, we need to get away from fee-for-service, we want to really move towards value, they set goals. Actually, they set very bold goals. Goals like within the, the next X years, we're going to have 50% of our payments tied to value. And then the next why more years, we're going to have this many more, and we're going to move from 50 to 80 to 90%. And those goals exist today, actually, even at the state level in many states. You know, where I am in Washington, we have a goal around moving to value-based payment, the majority, 90% or more, you know, uh, in the coming years. And so, you know, what would the world look like if we step back and said, in the next three, five, 10, 15 years, this is what we want to see in equity, that every payment arrangement or model that we have would have this type of measure in it would have this type of accountability in it. What will the world look like? I think the last 10 to 20 years have shown us we can get there. Will inequity still be an issue in the world? Yes, but will we have made serious gains as a product of setting those goals? I think so. That's my hope. Dr. Joshua Lau, seeing brighter days ahead through value-based care. 
Now we turn to our next guest, an expert in and a member of a minority population we haven't yet discussed on this show, Native Americans. Joining us is Dr. Siobhan Westcott, Director of American Indian Health and Professor at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Raised in a tiny cabin just outside Fairbanks, Alaska, Dr. Westcott is a proud member of the Athabascans ethnic group. She spent her career with one overall goal, improving the lives of Native Americans, and especially Native Alaskans. As Dr. Westcott indicates, promoting equity for any group ultimately supports equity for all groups. Healthcare for Native American populations in the U.S. is unique given their complex relationship with the federal government. But issues of representation in the doctor's office, of race-based identification and measurement, of remote care for rural populations, and of the need for providers for cultural sensitivity, these issues deserve and require some attention. And now, our talk with Dr. Siobhan Westcott. Tell us about your heritage. Uh, who are the Athabascan? So um, Athabascan is actually a language group, and I'm currently doing a study actually on the terms that we use for the Native people who are now in what is the U.S., because uh, a lot of these terms are imposed. So that's not the traditional word. Um, like a lot of tribes, we call ourselves Diné, and it's an ever-evolving field where, you know, there's just not good choices. For instance, American Indian is very confusing for people who are from India because it, it seems like maybe that applies to them. And every time I've been involved where we had a faculty position or a staff position with American Indian preference stated in a job description, we always had somebody whose heritage was from India applying. Uh, every single time we had at least one. So it's, you know, and it's based on a 500-year-old mistake. Well, in healthcare, we know how mistakes can carry generation to generation. That's what we're all about is fixing those, right? Well, that's what they told me the first day of Harvard Med School and orientation. They said, look, half of what we teach you is going to turn out to be wrong. Huh. We just don't know which half. <laughs> and so tell us about some of the challenges. Give us some examples of, of how... Uh, Native Americans are left behind in sort of general healthcare. Well, uh, the most striking statistic that I can give is, so there's an Indian Health Service. If you're not familiar with that, um, it actually is is rooted in, in what was the Department of War. So in the 1800s, the federal government negotiated with tribes uh, treaties that included healthcare and and the more cynical interpretation of why healthcare is included in these treaties is that if there were an epidemic, then the federal government could legally uh, sequester or quarantine Native Americans because they had these treaties. But they I don't think they realized that the Indian Health Service, which is the current way that that um, treaty right is delivered, <laughs> um, is a nearly $6 billion agency, which is the second largest federal provider of healthcare. So um, it's quite uh, it's quite a journey that we've come, but the Indian Health Service has consistently between 20 and 25% physician vacancy rate. Mm. 
So imagine trying to deliver this care when you have one-fifth or one-fourth missing of key staff. And that's just positions at every level um, where you need staffing, there are shortages. So that, is, that predates the pandemic. This is not, you know, problems with burnout of the pandemic. This was before COVID-19. So, you know, there's there's definitely access to care issues. The other thing people don't understand, the Indian Health Service is not insurance. They can go anywhere and, and then the Indian Health Service covers it. There's only certain locations that you can go to uh, and very few urban areas. And most Native people in the U.S., based on the census, are in urban areas, definitely a majority. So um, that's not necessarily even the greatest coverage. Mm. So, you know, there's lots of reasons why um, healthcare is just even getting access to healthcare is an issue for Native Americans. Is that what you would call, uh, you know, the biggest challenge then facing providers is sort of having enough time to treat folks? Or um, is there also an inability to reach folks for treatment? All of the above. Uh, also, uh, chronically underfunded. Mm. So COVID has somewhat helped that. And I, and I will say uh, it's not all doom and gloom. The Indian Health Service, very early on, they've always been great at vaccines. I will give them credit for uh, their immunization rate for children is usually in the 90 plus percentile. So IHS has always been good at vaccines and they were very early on in the planning uh, as to how they might deliver COVID vaccines when they became available. So I don't know if you remember, it seems like a decade ago, but uh, the first vaccines that came out, Pfizer and Moderna, needed very cold freezers, not just, you know, any old freezer. Yeah. Throw it in there, it's all good. Mm -hmm. It needed, you know, minus 80 freezers, which are, you know, you don't expect to find those in a rural health clinic, right? IHS was all over it. They did great. And there's there's lots of data problems, but um, for the a couple of times, there's been snapshots of um, vaccine rates by race, and American Indians, Alaska Natives are at the very highest percentiles. And so, some tribes or IHS facilities were doing so well vaccinating their service population, they offered it to neighbors who weren't uh, Native American uh, to be able to get vaccinated. Because I think at some level, we understand we're not isolated. And if your neighbors and, and people in your community are not vaccinated and protected, that affects everyone. Um, so, you know, there's just this push to not only get as many vaccines to their service population, but understand the bigger picture. And I know you talk about three levels of autonomy. Can you explain to us uh, what that means for a better health care and system and representation for Native Americans? The first level autonomy is obviously um, your personal health care decisions. But that's one level of autonomy. The next level of autonomy is sort of at the community level. Um, 
And that's where tribes are unique in that they have control over the healthcare. So some, there is an Indian health service and that is, uh, again, based in treaties and has, has legal implications. It actually gives, they have quite a bit more flexibility if it's tribal run than if they're constrained by federal rules. Then the third level of autonomy is taking care of our own. So when we have so few Native med students and Native physicians and someone can't see someone who looks like them when they're, or they have a connection with, huh. the way that we count race in the U.S. Is, is not capturing the complicated racial identity that people can have. So if you're given a form that's based on the federal rules for reporting that asks you for your race, you can choose as many as you want. Uh, you're self-reporting what races apply to you. Uh, but the way it's reported, depending on um, which department you're looking at, so census will be more inclusive and report anybody who checked the native box, they get reported as native. But under Department of Education rules, um, you only get reported as a race if you selected a single race. Uh, just think of it, there's a thousand students who said they were Native. Because it, but because they were allowed to check as many boxes as they wanted, um, the Department of Education ignores those who said they were more than one race. So they just eliminate them. They're gone. Yeah, they disappear. They disappear and they're just put in a giant bucket category called two or more races. Huh. And so it, your argument is you're leaving information on the table, so to speak. Right. And support for services uh, is undercut because uh, you're losing 80% of the students who could benefit from Native student services but you're not going to get a budget for that because you don't, you can't show the students. You can't identify them. I get it now. <laughs> it took me, I'm a little slow. Well, and I think that's why it persists because it's so hard to grasp. The census does it differently. And so the good thing about policy reform is that we're not asking the federal government to do something they've never done. A, a very large department within the federal government already does it this way of a loan and a loan in combination. So I think we'll see. Uh, and I think this is specific, um, especially specific to the folks that you're interested in helping. It, it, when we talk about integrative medicine, is there a problem getting Native American populations to sort of follow Western medicine and you have to convince them and integration helps? Or is it there are benefits from both sides and we can we can select to make a better product, so to speak? Exactly. And there are um, Alaska and at the Navajo Nation, there's uh, traditional healers on staff. I mean, it's hard because I'm very I'm biased having put also the blood, sweat and tears to get a medical degree, you know, I really see that both are necessary and helpful in their way, but I think people try and co-opt them. And I remember it's 
maybe a decade ago, uh, somebody who did not know what they were doing ran a sweat lodge retreat in Arizona and, and ended up killing several young, healthy people because they did not know what they were doing. So, you know, I think you do need to be careful. Um, not everything is safe. Um, and I do think that's what Western medicine does well is quality control. Um, but that doesn't mean that you're delivering the right thing. You may be delivering whatever you're delivering well and with quality, but it may not be what's needed. We're all about the right care for the right person at the right time. And, that and I will say, you know, early on you mentioned, you know, what does health equity mean? And I, I'll say that I was part of the task force for the American Medical Association, which um, helped define health equity and started uh, their health equity center which has really taken off. We gave them a pretty good starting point and Lisa Maybank, who's their director, has just set it up into the stratosphere in terms of quality of the work. But we struggled with the definition of health equity. Most of the available definitions that were widely circulated were a paragraph and you lost yourself after a sentence and a half. And so I didn't come up with this, but I, I I'm just so impressed with Christina Rose, who did, um, and this is now our definition, and I may not have the words exactly right, but the sentiment is there. Um, health equity is optimal health for all. Short and to the point, right? And, and fairly comprehensive. Exactly, because we know that there's not an even playing field, um, but there's no room in that that race should be a defining factor. We have some work to do, which um, uh, I think that the sort of unfortunate social uh, issues and social unrest over the last two years um, have added to that, but have called attention to the, the need. We have a lot more to do, correct? Each of these communities is having the same struggle that we are. And I, what I think ultimately needs to happen is that leaders from these um, underserved populations should sort out what guidelines for how to choose terms and if need be, come up with new terms or revive old terms that are more culturally aligned. The ultimate in colonizing that we're still identified by a 500-year-old mistake uh, at the federal legal level. So you know, how can you take control uh, and feel like you run your life or the decisions for your community when you can't even control what you're called? That's Dr. Siobhan Westcott exploring the complexities of health equity and how we may finally solve them. Okay, folks, the wait is over. It's time again for Matt's facts. Some not so trivial facts for you to share around the water cooler. April is Alcohol Awareness Month, first established many years ago by the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence. First, some fast facts compiled by the experts at Recover.org from the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Did you know more than 14.5 million people in the U.S. struggle with alcohol use disorder, and that's people aged 12 and up. You can start young. Of that huge population, less than 1 in 10 are receiving treatment. Men are twice as likely to binge drink as women. 
with an average of five drinks per binge. And by the Institute's most recent accounts, approximately 40,000 babies may be born in the U.S. each year with a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. You may not know, NCQA does work on this issue. HEDIS includes a measure called the IAD, Identification of Alcohol and Other Drug Services, by looking at service categories, including in and outpatient services, emergency services, and telehealth. The measure summarizes the number and percentage of patients who receive service for alcohol and other drug abuse or dependence during the measurement year. For more about this, important HEDIS measurement tool, go to our website, ncqa.org, click in the box in the top right corner and type the letters IAD. That's the search box. Or you can search alcohol on our blog at ncqa.org slash blog. And to get help, check out recovered.org. Our quality innovation series starts April 27th. Sign up for more than 20 courses all of them are online and will remain online for registrants until next year. Yeah, you can pick and choose what you want to take, but you'll save money if you get the all access pass. So go to education.ncqa.org to sign up. On July 12th and 13th of this year, we'll also have our Digital Quality Summit. It's all virtual. This year's theme is building an equitable digital health ecosystem. So for more information, search Digital Quality Summit at ncqa.org. And finally, our newest event, our live week-long Health Innovation Summit, starts on Halloween. You won't want to miss it. If you want to attend, speak, or sponsor, go to ncqasummit.com for more information. Before we go, we turn to you, dear listener, for your input. Tell us your response to the following question of the week. How can we fast track health equity? We're looking for answers here, folks. So send us your comments about this or the show itself to communications at ncqa.org. And hey, if you have a question for any of our guests, you can send those along as well or tag us in social media at ncqa tends to be our handle. Well, that's it for this week. Another one done for Inside Healthcare. Keep spreading the word about our show. Tell your friends and colleagues, influencers, anyone you know in healthcare, especially if they might be a good guest. On behalf of our producer, Dave Smolar, and the entire team here at NCQA, thanks for joining us. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.